You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Let's talk microdosing, as you'd expect from a Bible podcast. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. And you know, microdose gummies are good for so many things like anxiety, workflow, sleeping, and stuff like that. I mean, Jared, we've had people in our lives that have benefited from this too, not just us. Yeah, I have a family member who regularly uses microdosing for more creative, like recreational time, a time they journal every night and it's sort of a way to unwind and do the journaling. And that's worked really well for them. Our yeah. producer. Our producer. It's made such a difference, folks. I can't even tell you that. So anyway, <laughs> and for me as well, uh, microdose gummies help me a lot with anxiety and sleep and just stopping that racing mind at night. And it helps tremendously. I get a good night's sleep. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, we're going to talk about creeds, confessions and statements of belief. And I think we have a lot to say about this, Pete. We have a lot to say about everything. Indeed. Yeah. So, you know, every once in a while, it's just got to be you and me because we hold our tongues so much when we have guests on, it builds up and we got to have these episodes where we could just go off, you know? Bent. <sighs> yeah. So say say yeah. a little bit more, Pete, about why this topic, why today? Well, yeah, we, we decided to talk a little bit about this very broad topic because you know, very much in the Christian news, at least lately, has been a statement called social justice in the gospel, which is essentially saying that social justice issues, the way they're being navigated by many Christians today, is really contrary to the gospel. And as a result, you know, another statement of faith came out with affirmations and denials and very official looking. And, you know, we read this and what really just got this discussion going in our minds, we just looked at it and said, I, I just, I can't believe people are writing this, frankly. That's my opinion. And, you know, the, we, we just saw some, uh, I guess, problems with it that we f feel are pretty big problems. In fact, really rather gaping sorts of problems with it. And that just got us talking about this. Like, for example, you give an example, Jared, of what you think is a big problem with it. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in with an example. But let me just say, I think, up front that this isn't about bashing this particular. I mean, we have problems with it and we'll talk about that. But I think it's more representative of the kind of systems of belief that we talk about a lot on the podcast that are purported to be derived from the Bible. And I think a lot of what we talk about is how actually if, if we read the Bible more seriously and we look at it in context and we look at it from these various angles and, and scholars have done a lot of work with that, we begin to see that the Bible itself doesn't uphold some of these statements, these blanket statements about culture or about virtue or morality or even about itself, the Bible. And so I just want to name that because there's been other statements, the Nashville statement, these other statements that come out that are trying to uh, basically 
take the Bible and, and it's a statement on, on theology. So these are our beliefs that we're getting from this text. And those, those beliefs are some of the things that, that we want to challenge and talk about. Right. And, and then move to the, uh, the broader issue, right? Yeah. Of the fact that Christians have been doing things like creeds and confessions and statements for a very, very long time. Yeah, and and how that can that's sometimes a good thing. Yeah. You know, you, like why do we do that? Right. Right. What what's what is the point and and why do we keep coming up with new ones and things like that? So I think, you know, that's a really I think important topic for us to be thinking about and just riffing on because they're just all around us and and you know, this is just the thing that triggered it for us to think more about just the nature of these things. Mhm. And, and why we do them. Yeah, so uh, before we get to that bigger picture, let's just, I'm, I'm going to give a context for anyone who hasn't read this. The first affirmation, and I'm not sure why they put these statements and affirmations and denials. It feels a little old school, but there's an affirmation and denial about Scripture. It, it sets a tone of being thoroughly logically consistent. It's almost like legal. We affirm this, now let's be clear, we deny this, and now we're very clear. Yeah. And there should be no... Yeah, it's like a legal document. Debate about it, of course, when you write statements, that's exactly when people debate when you put things in writing like this, but anyway. Yeah, so the the first affirmation is about the Bible, and this is the Bible for normal people. So we just want to talk about some of these things. Mm -hmm. So the Bible is God's Word, says it's inerrant, infallible, and the final authority for determining what is true and in parentheses, what we must believe, and what is right, parentheses, how we must live. All truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by God's final word, okay. which is Scripture alone. So, we got, we got lots of things in there, inerrancy, infallibility, yeah. it's the final authority on determining what is true, how we live. So, what would you say about that? Well, I mean, that's fine, I guess. I mean, that from a certain perspective, that's, that is how Christians, some Christians think, and you know that they're perfectly free to make that statement of course there's a lot of equivocation there about you know what is true you know what's to be believed and how we're to live and it, it already is setting up what you know we talk about a lot here on the podcast which is essentially a rule book view of the bible the bible has propositions it has statements and you look at those statements and true faith and a faithful life is by adhering to those statements. And and I think, you know, what usually, at least I feel that I pick up when I read statements like this, and, and Jared, you mentioned the Lansdale Statement, also the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and Biblical Hermeneutics. It's much longer, but it operates in the same vein. There is a lot of equivocation of terms that are assumed to be very clear and foundational, but when you start picking at it a little bit and asking some questions, you wind up saying that it's really not that clear. And it's already assuming, well, it's asserting as a basis for everything that's going to happen from that point on, that a strict inerrantist biblicism is simply the de facto proper way to read the Bible. Right. And, you know, the thing is that you can't even really get past that first affirmation. That's where the debate is. It's in that first statement. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting that, you know, when you, it's funny that it, it sets it up as, which I think was a broader point to make, that all truth claims, basically, which is a common thing to believe as a more conservative Christian, all truth claims have to kind of go through scripture. That's the filter through which you have to sort of adjudicate these things. But it's interesting to me that there's all these other things already added. Like, kind of from the beginning, inerrancy, infallibility, 
And it's assuming that the Bible endorses those things already. Right. And I think that's a that's a challenge. Like, I, I have no problem saying that, you know, we should test things through God's Word. We should test things through Scripture, through the Bible. But let's not bring all this baggage of already preconceived ideas of what the Bible has to be in order to be that filter. Right, and and understanding what the Bible even says. And I know that sounds tricky, like we're trying to create problems or something, but, you know, the Bible is notoriously difficult to understand in places, and there are clear statements that no one would ever do. Like? No one stones their rebellious children. Now, of course, people would say, and I think rightly so, yeah, but we have to look at the whole thing through the lens of Christ. Aha, now we have the final authority, don't we? It's actually not scripture. It's, it's a, it's a Christ-centered something or other, right? Now, at that point, you have my attention, because I think that's how Christians have always thought about the Bible, not the way it's laid out here in the first affirmation, but as something that is actually judged by the person and work of Christ. So, let me see if I'm hearing you correctly, because I might not be, but when we're talking about authority, and it's so easy to just say the Bible's an authority, the problem with that is it's, it's a text that has to be read and interpreted. It, it, it just has to be. And if that's the case, then the filter we use, the interpretive lens that we use for understanding Scripture, is more of the authority. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what the authority is sort of the, I think of it like uh, like a decoder ring, <laughs> where you have this code, it, it's, it's an ancient, diverse, it's this ambiguous book, and so we have to have some interpretive framework or some rules of engagement here. And that those rules of engagement are in some ways authoritative. And it seems to be in the history of the church that Christ is that lens and that authority. Now, of course, Christ is learned through Scripture, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's why I think God in his wisdom gives us four Gospels that don't cohere. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think this, it just gets sort of messy. And I think you're hitting it right on the head, Jared. I mean, the way I would put it is that this filter is actually the authority through which you read Scripture. It is actually that statement that becomes the thing by which you judge whether what you're saying is actually true and right. And that's, I think, a problem because that standard needs to be talked about whether it's actually, let's say, doing justice to, I will put it this way, the self-evident diversity of Scripture, where it's not just a big grand statement of faith, find the right passage, and there you go. It's much more beautifully complex. That's why it, it occupies people's minds and has for over 2,000 years. You know, it's not a pamphlet. And to sort of make it into this, well, as we all know, the Bible is A, B, C, D, and E, and and to be a good Christian, you're going to believe all these things the Bible teaches, or you're going to believe the things that our tradition or our system tells you it teaches, right? I mean, you know, we've been through this, Jared, you know, in in other conservative contexts where confessions are really the lens through which you must read Scripture. To be fair, I think that's not true only in conservative churches. Okay. I I think a lot of traditions have, whether it's the common book of prayer, whether it's certain other confessions of faith or other traditions. I would just say, I think think Lutherans probably have some confessions of faith that they read Scripture through as well. I think the, the difference here is not that people have... Everybody has confessions, but people have different notions of confessionalism. Yeah, say more about that then. I think that's important. Right. Yeah, because and people have, I mean, I know plenty of people have confessions of faith, Episcopalians, for example, but they hold to the tradition willingly, but again, as the saying goes, with open hands. 
I think when you have a confession that was written in whatever segment of the history of the church, where you hold on to that with a tight fist and won't let go, you're essentially making that the absolute authority. And that's self-contradictory if you're saying the Bible's the authority, unless you're going to say that, well, our tradition has gotten the Bible completely right. Therefore, we're not actually asserting our authority, we're just asserting the plain authority of Scripture, which is some of the language in the first affirmation that you read. You know, it's, it's clear. Yeah, that's right. I think you're hitting on something really important, which is there's something to thinking about a confession or a statement of faith as a way of saying, in our time, this is the best interpretive framework we have, or this is our best shot at how to live a faithful Christian life in our lifetime. But it's not making this pronouncement that future generations aren't going to have to update it or that things don't, that things change. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, a, yeah, that's a posture of saying, yeah, we all have to interpret it for ourselves because we all have to live a life that's hopefully faithful. Right. And so we have to do the best we can, but that's very different than saying, no, listen, you guys have all muddied the waters. Here's a statement that clears it up. Yeah. That there's this beeline. For everybody. Yeah, yeah. That f there's a beeline <laughs> from the Bible now to us, and this is the, the one true trajectory that we should have been on all along, and we're holding right, it. Right, and there's, there's no recognition of the validity of other traditions. Yes. That have some pedigree behind them and some thoughtful people, and... You know, I think you're touching, Jared, here on what I actually think is maybe the most important thing that I think we can remember about confessions and statements and creeds, which the statement we're discussing here, the um, social justice and the gospel, I think just runs over with tanks again and again and again. And it's 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 their attitude of, which which is not simply related here, it's very common, it's Christ against culture. Don't listen to what culture says, do what the Bible says. And without really thinking that, well, the Bible itself is, first of all, it's, it is diverse, and it's culturally embedded. And every confession of faith throughout the history of Christianity has likewise grown out of particular, like you're saying, Jer, particular moments of people just trying to live as Christians in a particular point in time. And so, you have different kinds of creeds, different kinds of confessions that come out, all of which I think have an air of legitimacy, just because that's what people of faith do, right? They want to articulate what they believe, but then it gets sort of canonized, and it really does. They get canonized, and it's like, this is it, which means you're taking it outside of a cultural context and saying it now transcends humanity in a sense. It transcends humanity. It becomes a big cultural thing. And here's the thing, the Bible itself isn't even like that. That's, that's the irony in all this. It's like, it's, this is so contrary to a true notion of biblical authority, in my opinion. And I mean, I write about this, I think about this, this that's where I am. But it, I find it so contrary to the notion of true biblical authority that it's, it strikes me as rather a straightforward problem, if you well, ask me. Well, and, and not to make it too abstract, and I think we've talked about this when we've had our uh, episode on authority, but I think we, we have a tendency as humans to idolize, and I mean that literally, make idols of absolute things that we can anchor our ships to. Like, we, we really like, I mean, we're sort of, we don't, I don't think as humans we like this feeling of uncertainty and anxiety over things change. We get older. Things evolve. Things develop. And for people like me who like control, I like to have control of my life, and I like to feel like things are safe, and that brings me comfort. 
then I'm going to probably have a proclivity to idolize or make things very stable that aren't really stable. And I think a lot of these statements point to me that we keep trying to make the Bible this anchor point that it just was never intended to be. And so we keep trying like, well, here's our affirmations and denials. And now this is sort of what it is. Now here it is. And if you go through the history of the church, there's been all these things. And I appreciate kind of Richard Rohr and these other thinkers that we've been listening to. And, and I think us too, coming to that place where we say, well, maybe the, maybe the point here is to learn to live in that and trust God and not have to make these idols out of texts and belief statements and traditions and churches. And we, we just do that in all kinds of ways. Yeah. So anyway, I don't mean to wax abstract there, but I think there's something about our human need to get a grasp on reality so we feel safe. Mm-hmm. And the Bible just, just doesn't do it. It just resists that. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. I was worried about talking about fast growing trees on here because I'm not a green thumb, but then I realized that probably makes me the perfect candidate to be able to talk about this. I loved the website. It was so easy. It was searchable by region. And then the experts who are there to help you make the decisions lowers the anxiety around something I don't typically know a lot about, but it was a really good experience. This spring, they have the best deals online up to half off on selected plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning. Residential online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Well, and especially, I think, I mean, not, not to make this simplistic, because I think it's there's a lot in history that I don't understand, and that's sort of, a, you know, big picture things that, um, you know, I'm aware of, but, you know, I don't control, but... 
you know, in the modern period of Christianity, which is, let's say, after the Reformation, the advent of the rise of science and, you know, universities in Europe and things like that, our statements of faith are highly intellectualized. And that's the way we get a grasp of our lives, through some type of intellectual assertion. And I find that curious. I mean, I understand it because, you know, the intellect, we're not, you know, faith is not devoid of the world of thought, but it's like buying into the modern worldview. That sounds a little simplistic too, but it's sort of the modern mindset that, you know, our left brain is where we access truth by putting things in order, by writing affirmations and denials or creeds or 10-point statements of faith in church websites, and here's what we believe, and this is why, and... And, you know, like, like many Protestant, like any Protestant statement that I'm aware of, this one, the uh, social justice and the gospel, has scripture proof texts underneath. Well, I was glancing at some of those, and I thought, yeah, there are other ways. I, I mean, I think you're sort of taking that out of context, some of these things, you know, and, and they may not prove or support what you think it does. But with this intellectualizing of the faith, that's what you do. You look for footnotes, and you put them in there. And I just wonder if there is a different way of going about thinking about the nature of statements and of confessions and creeds that doesn't put everything into this intellectual quadrant, and you, and you pay no attention to the quality of someone's life and their, let's say, effectiveness in ministry. Remember Jen Hatmaker, when she was on? Mm-hmm. That's, that was one of her real points of sorrow, saying, these are people who are ripping me apart publicly. And they have no idea what, you know, my husband and I have done for the past 10, 15 years and, and the ministries that we've had. But, you know, if, if all that matters is getting the words right and putting them in a certain order, yeah. this is what you get. Right. See, I wouldn't mind this affirmation and denial business at all if they said, listen, here's what we're affirming and denying. This is where we are. Uh, although, of course, this is open for debate and we welcome it. Right. Right. But but that's not what these things do. Well, I want to get back to a little bit this Christ versus culture thing. Okay. It, it, because, it, you know, for those who haven't read the uh, this statement, which I'm completely okay if you never read, really. No no need really to read it, I don't think. But the, the first denial, so if the first affirmation was that, you know, inerrancy, infallibility, blah, blah, blah. The denial is basically saying we deny the, it says the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory. We deny that those are consistent with biblical teaching. And so it, 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 it just struck me that you said it sounds like they buy into a lot of modern thinking, and then they're basically saying, but postmodern, postmodern ideology and framework, bad. Modern ideology and framework, good. Mm-hmm. But without recognizing that they're just another ideology. Like, we all have that. We all have an ideology or a framework or a whatever you want to call it that helps you understand kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. We all have a way of looking at things that's influenced by where we were born and the people that we read in school and our parents. And and it just seems a little naive to kind of call out postmodern ideology derived from, which is funny to me because I think it's maybe a little bit backwards because I would, I think that intersectionality, radical feminism, and and critical race theory would probably be more derived from some some post-structural or post-modern thinking rather than the mm-hmm. other way around, but I don't want to get caught up in the details. But so, so say more about this Christ versus culture, because I think maybe a lot of people that's a new 
it's a little abstract and a little new for people. Well, it is. I mean, Christians have thought for a long time about what posture should we have as followers of Jesus and the culture around us? And the answer to that question is never, ever, ever easy. Hey, normal people, Pete here. Just a quick break. First, if you like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes. I could back that up with plenty of Bible verses, but there's just no time. Also, consider supporting our work at Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, cheaper than the price of a very bad cup of coffee, you'll have access to videos, early announcements, book clubs, an active Slack group of kindred spirits, and more. And that's patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. Finally, a huge thanks to our producers group at Patreon. They get on calls with us and give us great feedback. If you like what we're doing, thank them. If not, just blame Jared. So thank you to Logan Jansen, Matthew Tringali, Christopher Lake, Josh Hamilton, Kevin Marshall, Robert Cochran, Tyler Tankersley, Robert Auth, Austin Hill, and Patrick Antos. We couldn't do what we do without you. Now back to the podcast. Well, can you, can, I'm going to back up even more. When you say culture, what do you mean? Because for me growing up, culture just meant like rap music. No. So, <laughs> good point. You know, it was like, yeah. they got, you got Jesus on the one hand and church, and on the other hand, you have rap music and rated R movies. Okay. And that's why we are against them. Right. That's what culture is. Culture is, is a code word. Is a, that, I love that, that phrase, a code word for bad. Yeah. And what I mean by culture, and I think what others mean by culture as well, is I would define it this way. It is our inescapable humanity. And, you know, the, the structures we live in, whether political or religious or social, just the fact that we're people living in a particular point in time and place, it, this is the context in which we live and breathe and think and move and marry and have children and die and divorce and, 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 and you know, have jobs and things like that. It's, I mean, culture is, I think, such a basic concept that maybe for me it's, it's synonymous with simply being human in community and what comes out of that. Yeah, the particularities of our life that are accidental or based on things that could have been different. Right, like uh, me being born in New Jersey and you in Texas, right? Yep. And, and, and how we were raised and, and the influences that we had. And, and there are cultures and subcultures. And all. I mean, you can parse this thing to death. But And, and I, wouldn't you say it's, it's just naive to think, it, it seems naive, I, I don't mean to be dismissive, but it seems naive to think that that doesn't affect how we read our Bible. Right, exactly. And, and But you see, that's the modernist lie, if I can put it that way, that you can actually be objective. Yeah, this objectivity. Yeah. And I, we all strive for not just, we don't want to just make stuff up for no reason. I mean, and, and you know, the left brain and analysis and logic are great. I mean, I, I, I think we're using that stuff right now as we're talking about creeds, right? So, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with it, but the thought that what this text means or what this faith means is just obvious and it's clear and it's really black and white with no wiggle room. Uh, that, I mean, that for me doesn't work, you know, and it's not because I haven't read the Bible, you know, and, and I, I don't think I, I'm, I'm alone here in, in coming to conclusions like that. But it, it is really, postmodernism is so threatening to some Christians because Christianity is sort of mired in this modernist mindset that we can actually look at things objectively. And, you know, again, not to pull the race card, but very often there are a lot of white men involved in this, you know, and, and we've had 
of, you know, Will Gaffney on, for example, and, and, you know, just pointing out how our location, our cultural or social location really does affect why we read texts, including especially the Bible, and, and what we get from it and how we derive meaning, the questions we ask of it, which is what, for me, makes the Bible absolutely fascinating and bottomless. You know, it's, it's a constant source of grace, I think, and of, of nurturing and of engaging with God and with other people, I think is amazing. But to reduce it to, there are some clear statements here that, you know, yeah, okay, well, there are, there are clear statements, but what do you do with them? What do you do with some of these clear statements like, you know, stoning the rebellious son or treating virgin women like property or, you know, battling the Midianites and capturing the virgin women and dividing them among the Israelite troops? Like, those are clear. What do we do with those? Yeah, I was just thinking at the, the end here of this first denial says that we deny that competency to teach, and this is convoluted, so it, it may not translate well. We have to translate here, but... We deny that competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding, simple communication of what is revealed in Scripture. Right. And so basically, anyone can teach on biblical issues. The qualification really is, is that you're spiritual, that you have a clear understanding, and can communicate simply what is revealed in Scripture. like yeah, What the Bible simply reveals, right? Yeah, yeah like what is revealed in Scripture. Like For me, what's revealed in Scripture is not clear and not simple. Well, if it were, people wouldn't be talking about it. And see, I, I, wanna, um, I don't want to presume to understand motivations. But all I can say is that that is very consistent with what I've experienced over and over and over again within some Christian communities, namely this. We don't really care what scholars say. It means nothing to us because you don't have the spirit. How do we know? You're saying something we don't like, right? And there, there is – the irony of this is that these overly intellectualized, really absolutizing the intellect that you see in statements like this have a decidedly anti-intellectual tone to them because you actually can't argue with these. You cannot exercise your mind in engaging these affirmations and denials. But of course, you know, are they there even to engage? They're not there to engender debate. Right. They're making a declaration. Yes. And to create boundaries, which in and of itself is not wrong. Every, everybody lives with boundaries. Everybody, you know? So that's part of culture. You know, we, you have tribes you belong to, and some people's tribes are bigger and better than others. It doesn't matter. But we all have them. And that's what this statement is doing. It's creating a fence a protective fence saying, who wants to come inside this fortress with us and speak out to the world, to the bad culture out there saying, you're wrong, we're right. And no attempt to engage in discussion or debate here. That's not the point of it. The point is simply to make a declaration of what you affirm and what you deny so that your tribe, and again, tribe is not a bad word for me because we're all part of tribes. That, so that tribe's boundaries are clearly delineated. It, basically, it's an exercise in boundary marker making. Right. You, know, you, you make boundaries and you mark them clearly, and this is where you go and no further. And, and they have the right to do that. Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't agree with anything almost that the statement says, but, you know, I have my own tribes and my own boundaries, I guess. Right? So so what then, if we extrapolate from this and say, okay, we all have to – and I, I – 
not to, not to make it too individualistic, but I think there's something too as we start to reconstruct our view of the Bible and our own Christian faith, where I think we run into this same kind of problem. Now, this is like on a more communal level, but I think individually, where we we have to reconstruct new boundaries that are maybe more porous, and that's that's a hard thing to do. So, as a community, you said your tribe. You know, what would your tribe's confession of faith or your tribe's statement of belief look like? Not the content. You know, it, it's almost like we've built a fortress and we only know how to build a fortress out of brick that's like impenetrable and it is supposed to stand the test of thousands of years and that all crumbles. And now we're saying, you know, or yeah, a hurricane came through and it sort of wiped it all out. And now we're saying, oh, we need to build a hurricane resistant structure. What's the material that we build this out of? Yeah. Like, how do we make something that has conviction, has belief that we don't fall into that old fear that was instilled in me that if you don't stand up for something, you fall for anything or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So we have to have convictions, firm beliefs on certain things, and yet hold those in a way that maybe we haven't been, we don't have a lot of practice for how to hold it differently other than to make an absolute statement out of it. Right. And see, part of this is the culture issue again, because you know, culture in a, in a broad sense here, we are living in a time that is still, the memories of the last 100 or 200 years are still very vivid, where the Christian faith in the West, and perhaps more so on this side of the Atlantic than other places, really is a cause of belligerence, of things are changing rapidly, you know, the rise of fundamentalism, a new kind of fundamentalism, not the fundamentalism of the 19th century, but a different kind in the wake of the scope monkey trials and things like that. And we're in this mode still you know, this tone like you're talking about, not the content of the confession, but its feel, you know, and its purpose. I, I think we're simply living out of that cultural context, which again, to me is, is an irony to say, you know, culture bad, Christ and Bible and the way we think good. It's, it's ironic that what's missing there is the, I think the self-evident recognition that the whole idea of writing affirmations and denials is itself a cultural phenomenon. That is born at, you don't write statements like this in 850 AD. Yeah. Or in the Bible. I don't see lists of affirmations and denials. Or in Judaism. Yeah. Not like this. I mean, that's that's not the thing, but it's, that's our way of, when I say our, I'm going to say more like our Western influenced way of thinking about the task of theology is to have statements and stand by them and affirm or deny and say, you know, I, I'm, my conviction is that I'm right, and if you disagree, you're the, by, by definition wrong. And this is part of the, the myth I'm going to say of Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, you know, which, which is great. I mean, we might all have to say that at certain times in our lives, right? And there's, there, again, there's nothing wrong with having conviction and saying, I believe this, and I don't care what happens to me. But that sort of is blown up into a mindset. I used to tell my seminary students, you know, Paul is very belligerent in Galatians. He just is. And students would use Galatians as sort of a model for ministry and a model for doing theology. Say, hey, listen, Paul is standing up and he's all this and whatever. Yeah, but Paul earned the right to do that because his sweat and his blood were in this church in Galatia. And Paul is also different in different letters, you know? So, we have to be really careful when to maybe stand up and when to even fight or debate and when there might be times for conversation and for discussion and dialogue, but to go really to this, 
almost like you can't wait to write another statement. So the world knows that we stand for Jesus and for the Bible, and the rest of you simply don't. We're really sorry. We love you. God loves you. God will be wrathful to you, but God still loves you. But if you don't sort of see this, these issues the way we do, and I, I think it's, it's lamentable, and it's utterly and entirely unproductive, this kind of statement. There are other kinds of confessions that I think are very different, but, but at least this kind that we're seeing on the popular level. I, I know, for example, those who wrote this, they, they made no pretense to ecclesiastical authority. They're not trying to speak for a church, which is good, but they're still obviously trying to speak with some type of authority about who gets to define what the gospel looks like. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, at the highest level, I'm, I'm hearing you say, like, it, it's, there's, there was a, a mode of thinking about the world that, that began to emerge in the Renaissance, right? Like, that's why we call it the Renaissance. Like, this new emerging way of thinking about the world that sort of culminates in the Enlightenment. So, we're talking 500 years ago, 600 years ago, and that a lot of the framework of our Christianity still has that flavor to it. And if we can't look behind, say, the 1400s, then we might think that that's the absolute way that it's always been that way. But when we begin to look further back into the the 1100s, the 800s, Judaism, the Bible itself, we see that that's not always how it is, unless all we can do is see the Bible through that lens of that modern period. I, I hear you saying maybe there's if we if we if we work hard, we might imagine a new way. Mm-hmm. We might imagine a new posture, a different way of thinking about faith, and that's hard to do. It's yeah. it's almost it's like really intangible for for some of us. I feel like I slip in and out of it a lot of times. Like sure. I'm really clear one minute, and then someone asks me to articulate it, and I'm like, and I just turn to mush. But on on good days, I think I can articulate a different vision that's outside of this modern framework. But for people who can't do that, like this statement here condemns it outright. And and that does, it's sort of like you're pulling back the curtain and re- revealing these authors of this statement are revealing that they're really married to this modern framework. And mm-hmm. so much so that they are identifying it with the Bible, the Bible and anything related, you know, in, in a modern framework are synonymous and anything outside of that, call it postmodern, is incompatible with the Bible. And to make the point again, that is inherently self-contradictory mm-hmm. because there, there's something actually driving how you look at the Bible. But again, you know, again, you know, we've both been in conversations like this, and I can imagine someone responding saying, well, we're not. We're just seeing and telling you what the Bible plainly says. And of course, the response to that is, thank you, modernist, <laughs> once again, without realizing how much our own culture affects how we think of something as plain or not plain or obvious or not obvious. Well, and I'm going to jump one more thing because we're talking about social justice and the gospel. And in the justice section of this statement, it says, we further deny that Christians can live justly in the world under any principles other than the biblical standard of righteousness. So, I, I just hear a Bible scholar, Pete, what is the biblical standard of righteousness that we're supposed to be following exactly? Well, I mean, first of all, and and this isn't necessarily against this statement, but righteousness is really in the Bible an action of faithfulness towards God and towards each other. It's not sort of a state of being. So, it's about really doing things and how you treat others. 
And in that respect, I say, listen, I think the biblical, you know, ideas or standards of, of righteousness, or that's a great place to start, but they are still culturally embedded, you know, because righteousness might mean something, you know, having to do with how, you know, if, if your virgin daughter is seduced, this is an exodus, for example, if your virgin daughter is seduced, then the guy who seduces her has to marry her. But if the father refuses, for whatever reason, refuses to have this loser marry his daughter, he still has to pay the bride price to the father because she's damaged goods. And once her virginity is gone, she won't get married and the father won't get paid. Now, he wants to get paid, presumably, hopefully, so his daughter can have some coin <laughs> to to live because she, you know, rather than becoming a prostitute or a beggar, you know, that's the, that that's an issue there. But but still, the, the the notion of thinking of, you know, how to treat a virgin daughter this way is just overlaid with all sorts of cultural moments that, frankly, you know, the Christian faith, I'm going to say, moves beyond. Judaism has moved beyond. And I think this is like why modern civilization has some good points to it. Because we know that we really shouldn't be looking at women who haven't had sex as property, you know, or slave laws in the Bible. The, and, and see, obeying that command is being righteous. And obeying other commands about, you know, you can beat a slave, just don't kill it right away, right? Or, or if an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, not if a slave's involved, then it's just reparations. It's, it's, it's property damage and you get paid, you get recompensed. Right. And so, yeah, the, the next statement here in this, the next uh, sentence in this statement is, you know, relativism or socially constructed standards of morality, you know, these notions of virtue and vice that are in flux cannot result in authentic justice. And it's assuming that the biblical standard of righteousness, that what's in the Bible for morally virtuous behavior is consistent. And the only way you get there is if you, if you take out a lot of different pieces of the Bible and kind of piecemeal a consistent ethic, but to do that, it's just this, it's a circle mm. of, well, the, the, for me, the Bible is relative. It depends. Are we talking about the, the ethics of Jesus? Are we talking about the socially constructed standard of pre standing on the, the edge of the, of the promised land or before, you know, some of, some of these Deuter, Deuteronomy laws are, are shifting the morality of what's expected, you know, when you're a nomadic people versus when you're a more sedentary people. And so we just, it just is difficult for me to see that, that, that a lot of people, when they read the Bible, don't see that when we're talking relativism, again, these were bad words for me growing up, like mm-hmm. relativism. Or, or socially constructed. And again, in, in, a, in a very true sense, the laws of the Bible and the wisdom of the Bible, like in the book of Proverbs, you could say, I mean, you, you, you could qualify this, and you probably would have to, but there is a sense in which it's socially constructed. Now, what they mean is atheistically socially constructed, but I don't think that something that's socially constructed is atheistic. If we believe in a God that takes pleasure in being a part of our messy humanity. Yeah, it's not inherently... Which is sort of fundamental to Christianity, yeah. right? So, Well, we, we make this assumption that anything related to God is unchanging, will never change, it is stable, it is constant. And if it's not that, then it can't be from God. And I think this is an unsustainable way of looking at it. And It's unsustainable. Yeah, and the Bible itself doesn't, doesn't uphold that. No, 
It's it's more of a truly a journey of people grappling with this nature of God in different contexts. And depending on whether you're before the exile or after, or before the Assyrian invasion or after, or before the exodus or after, all those things, people will, because of their experiences, they will think of God and want to talk about God and what makes sense. And I take great delight in the fact that our Bible actually models that for us. Again, the diversity of even laws when, I mean, everybody knows as you compare Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, when they're talking about the same topic, they don't say the same thing. Sometimes they do, but by no means always. And that's, you know, we had Ben Summer on in season one, uh, the Jewish scholar who, who, who talked quite eloquently about how Judaism can handle something like that. Right and 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 Christians. I mean, you have to listen to the podcast. Christians have not had the best success, especially in the modern period, where we assume that for God to be God, point number one, God has to be consistent and can't change His mind, and He can't, you know, there there can't be this diversity in this sacred text that He wrote, because then He'd be a bad writer and a bad God. Therefore, given that the Bible is inerrant, this and that, and everything it says, that's it. That's the standard. Which is a great idea until you start reading this stuff carefully and questions come up about these, some of these laws or other texts in the Bible that have been asked and gone over, my goodness, since before Jesus. It's, it's not easy following the book. Right. In the first 10 chapters of the Bible, we have God changing God's mind. In, in the first book, we have God changing God's mind. Mm. So it's just, it's, right. yeah, just interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any final thoughts that you would have here as we wrap up on creeds and confessions and statements of belief? Okay, briefly, I will say this. Clearly, you know, we don't agree with this particular statement, but the idea of making statements and confessions and creeds is, I think, part of the history of the church and is a very healthy exercise in answering a question that's simple to ask but hard to answer. What does it mean to follow Jesus right here and right now? You have, you know, the ancient church creeds of, say, the fourth century and, and later that articulate things within a particular milieu, within a particular moment in time and, and place in history, which are fine. And then other Christians come around and they put it differently. And then, you know, the Reformation happens and people put it differently. And you've got how many Protestant denominations that have different confessions of faith. A confession of faith or a statement or a creed is a way of articulating your understanding of what it means to be, to use Paul's language, in Christ. What does it mean? What are the implications of it? And Christians can never stop doing that, and they shouldn't. That's the question we should always be asking ourselves, so we're never going to stop, even if we don't write down the statements, we're never going to stop making them in some sense. We're never going to stop thinking about what does it mean, even if it means we have to be very flexible in how we think about God. That's a statement of faith, right? We all do that. The question is, do we recognize the impermanence of what we're saying? And if we do, that can create a lot of light, a lot of wisdom, a lot of love, a lot of community, a lot of, I think, being like Jesus. And if we forget that, we're just putting up, to paraphrase Paul's, walls of hostility that will continue to divide Christians and over things that some people might think are super important and central but may not be. Actually, social justice is important. <laughs> it is a central issue. I just think that they're articulating it in, in 
almost a polar opposite way that I think it should be, my opinion. So, so to, to close, we might say that we affirm the writing of creeds, confessions, and belief statements, but we deny <laughs> that they can get it all right and that there's only one way to be Christian for all time. Right. <laughs> yes. And we just made our own. And there we go. What should we call it? What should we call it? Oh, I don't know. We should have thought. No, no. It. no it's not, not social justice, and the, not SJ and the gospel, but PJ. PJ. PJ and, and the, the gospel. PB, Pete PJ and, and Jared G. and the gospel. Yeah. That's it. I like it. I like it. I like it. Let's Excellent. It Do you want to send everyone okay. off for the week? Sure. Bye. Now, hey, folks, uh, as always, thank you for joining us for another episode of the podcast. We love doing this, and we love having you be a part of this. Don't forget to consider supporting us at Patreon if you're not already. We're building this online community, which is just so much fun, and we, we benefit so much from it to be a part of fellow travelers and seekers and curious people who are trying to think through their faith. And what are, what's coming up, Jared, for us as we air this? As we as we air this, we have some exciting things coming up. We may we may or may not be republishing Genesis for normal people in the next few months. Mm. So we'll be on the lookout for that. And we for us, you know, the clock never stops. Mm-hmm. We, we're always burning the candle at both ends. So we're actually getting ready to start recording for season three. That's right. And we're we're really excited about some folks that we're going to have on and some of the topics that we're going to have next year so stay tuned for that all right all right folks thanks again see ya